0: The majority of murders every year are not by criminals, not by people with mental illness. It's people just like you and me. Usually, moments of irrational rage where, you know, it may be something we never thought we could do, but we just happen to have the circumstances hit us right at the wrong time.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Dark House. I'm Melissa Fiorentino. And I'm Hadley Mendelson. If you're new here, each episode, we dig into the backstory of a haunted house or otherwise notorious home and unpack all of the events that led to its eventual infamy. In our last episode, we
2: discussed 657 Boulevard in Westfield, New Jersey, also known as the Watcher House. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, make sure to do that and then come back. If you have had a chance to listen, here's a quick refresher. On June 5th, 2014, just three days after closing on their new home, Derek and Maria Broaddus began receiving threatening letters from an anonymous stalker who called themselves The Watcher. The letters were so creepy that the Broadduses never moved into the house and they struggled for years to find someone brave enough to buy it. Though the house finally sold in 2019, to this day, The Watcher has never been identified. So last week we went over everything, the letters, findings from both the official and unofficial investigations, all of the issues that the Broadduses dealt with when they tried to sell the house, and a rundown of the former owners and closest neighbors at the time the letters were written. Today, we'll be taking a closer look at the suspects who could have been behind the letters, and joining us will be special guest Casey Lytle. Casey is a psychology and sociology instructor who specializes in conspiracy theories, deception, and murder. So he's going to help us hopefully get a better possible understanding of the mindset of the watcher.
1: And I will just say that this is such an interesting discussion. Definitely one of my favorite guest interviews that we've had so far. So we're really excited for everyone to hear it. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Casey.
2: Hi, Casey. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Yeah, it's great.
2: We're really excited to dig into the Watcher case with you and all of the possible suspects that we're going to go over together, but... Before we jump into that rabbit hole, I was wondering if you could just take a minute to introduce yourself to our audience and share a bit about your background and maybe even how you got into this line of study.
0: Oh uh, yeah, Casey Lytle. I teach uh, psychology and sociology, and I got into this because about twelve years ago, I was able to design and teach a couple courses on psychology of deception and psychology of murder, and those kind of threw an umbrella over the entire conspiracy theory, true crime all of that element of it. And those kind of became specialty interests to, to the point that once once I went on TikTok just for fun and started getting followers due to the murder and deception and those topics actually picked up interest in a book on my conspiracy theory spectrum approach.
2: I'm like already off the bat. I can't wait to talk to you about those classes. Well, let's go through the suspects first. And just very quickly, I've already walked Hadley through the entire story of The Watcher. And I know you're familiar with the case. When did you first hear about it or remember first reading about it?
0: The first time I remember going into depth on it, I'm pretty sure it was just before the COVID shutdown. So that'd be March 2020. One of our classes had kind of diverted on to the Jean-Benet Ramsey case. And we were talking about different possibilities there. And a student asked me about this case if I thought the Watcher could have been a parallel that ended up not hurting kids, but could have something like that. And I didn't know that much about it at the time. So that got me to start digging into it a little more.
2: Okay. And safe to assume you've read the, the cut piece. Yeah. Okay, great. I want to review the suspects together, both official suspects and then some unofficial theories that have circulated online. So I think we should start with the official suspects. And if we're starting there, I would say, let's begin with the Langfords. The Langfords are the direct next door neighbors on the side of the house with the sunroom. So right under their guilty column, their house is one of the few possible vantage points that could have seen the daughter in the sunroom using that easel. Also, their house is obviously within earshot. So they may have heard Derek and Maria calling the kids names. Michael Langford, one of the adult sons in his 60s, was known for odd behavior like peeping into windows of homes being renovated. There's also the sister, Abby Langford, who came up as a suspect because she was working as a real estate agent. So detectives thought maybe she was bitter about not being included in the sale. Right. Pointing towards their innocence, we know that one of the envelopes had traces of female DNA, and they did test a sample of Abby Langford's DNA, but it was not a match. We also know that Earlier on in the investigation, the Broaddus had sent the Langfords a letter claiming they were going to knock down the house, kind of hoping that if somebody in that house was the author of the letters, that they would incite a reaction from them, but they got no such response. But two other things that I want to throw at you guys before we chat. Michael Langford actually passed away in April 2020, and Reddit user Scotty Sleuth pointed out that in his obituary, Michael is described as a voracious reader. So this is the exact line. Mike was a voracious reader with a decades-long Monday morning routine of walking to the Westfield library to choose new books to read and return books from the prior week. And as a reminder, Robert Lenahan used that exact phrase in regards to context clues from the watcher letters that they reveal about the author. When I found that, I was just like, that cannot be a coincidence, right? Full disclosure, I'm on the other side of that where I'm like, that's a common term. Had they disagreed. And then the last <laughs> thing I'll point out is that. The Westfield police chief, David Wayman, stepped down in August 2018 after it was discovered that he was involved in a few controversies, including his own hit and run that was allegedly covered up with two false police reports written by Leonard Lugo, who was the detective on the broadest case in 2014. So I got to wondering if it was something covered up here, especially given that when they ruled out. The Langford family as suspects. They did not provide the reason of how or why they got there. Is that connected at all? Is there anything there that needs to be further investigated?
0: Something that struck me early on, first in this case, was kind of how unconcerned the police seemed to be. And there did seem to be hostility, especially in this neighborhood, toward outsiders coming in, the new money coming in, and the threat they represented to the old houses. I mean... Uh, when the house was purchased first thing going on is construction people going inside doing some sort of renovation does that represent Uh that they're stripping out the soul of this house you know as i remember it this and that but to add another thing with michael and if he wanted to drop off letters at the post office it's just a two or three block diversion from his neighborhood
2: That was kind of, I think, one of the issues with the investigation is that since it went by mail, it could have come from anyone anywhere in that area. So it makes it really tricky. But for a while, I kind of ruled them out as suspects. It just felt like wrong place, wrong time. But when you think about how you either have to be on their side of the house or in the backyard to see that easel in the sunroom. So I guess the third place being inside the house, which I've considered, was it a construction worker or something? Hmm. But there's not a lot to support that. And there weren't as many names to go off of in order to try to dig into this. But I looked into a lot of people's family trees and trying to trace back, okay, who's been in Westfield for long enough to have had a grandfather watching this house in the 20s. And there were no good options for us there. So I kind of wonder how much of this letter is legit or how much can we trust the narrator?
0: That made me wonder, too. Trying to make the letter more mysterious, make it seem a little more multi generational. Uh, If you were trying to do a stereotypical creepy letter to freak people out and get them to move or to sell the house, uh, that kind of thing is is exactly what you would throw into it.
2: It is interesting, though, to your point about their disdain for new money or or new people in the community, but Maria's family had been in the community. for quite some time. She grew up in Westfield.
1: Yeah, that was something we talked about a lot, where it didn't seem like they quite fit the mold of the Hoboken new money that they called out in one of the letters.
2: Unless it's Derek that this person had a grudge with, because he is from Maine, and technically he worked his way up, so you might say, oh, you're new money now. But it's so confusing, and there's nothing provided in any of the coverage that is available online to explain who could have been so angry with him, or either of them, I guess. Right. So moving on to another suspect, this is what I would refer to as the gamer. At one point during the investigation, two detectives were staked out on Boulevard in a parked van, just watching the house with their own binoculars. And around 11 p.m., they noticed a car stop in front of the house for a suspiciously long pause. So that car was traced back to a young woman. She lived in a nearby town, but her boyfriend actually lived on the 600 block of Boulevard. And at the time, he was actually living somewhere else, but detectives spoke with her and she said that the boyfriend played some, quote, really dark video games. One of the detectives remembered her mentioning a specific character called the Watcher. So that's obviously very incriminating. And the boyfriend had agreed to meet with Westfield police on two separate occasions. He didn't show up to either interview, which I think is a little fishy. We don't know a lot about this guy. I couldn't find a name for him anywhere or for his girlfriend. Without having his name, I couldn't really dig into the family line there. But there just doesn't seem to be enough of a connection. I don't know. I don't think I'd see this person as a real suspect.
0: Yeah, this one, I kind of dismissed him right away because it just didn't yeah. seem to fit the profile uh, in any way. And one of the th- things, the unique things that hit me that made me think it was an older person they mentioned that the notes were typed, mm-hmm. which I assume means actual typewriter, and the double space after the period, which yeah. the, you know, people know about the double space. But if you're teenagers doing a prank, I'm not sure they would think to put in a double space because that's something you've never done if you've learned keyboarding, you know, if you came up through mm-hmm. that.
2: I will say I'd remember being taught the double space. I actually don't remember when we shook it off. I just know at some point I stopped doing it. But I feel like, was it... Automatic in Word or something a long, long time ago.
0: That might have been. So you wouldn't have to hit it twice. Okay, that makes sense because I'm wondering when I dropped it because I don't remember consciously stopping it. Exactly,
2: yeah. The Watcher signature is also typed but in a cursive font. And I've never actually owned or used a typewriter to really write something down, but can a typewriter switch fonts? No, right? Correct. So I think it's a computer, but probably an older computer. Yeah. Yeah. I'll raise one other point. Somebody on Reddit pointed out that there's technology now. Every printer has this sort of coding inside it. It comes out in invisible whatever on the paper. And basically they were saying this was 2014 when it happened. Surely police or whoever could have sent this off to the printer companies who are able to use, you know, special technology to read the encoding and tell you this is the type of printer this came out of. So I would throw that out there in terms of kind of unexplored avenues, things that they messed up in the investigation.
1: I also think that speaks to what you were just saying, Casey, about how regardless of what other leads they could have followed, the investigation wasn't taken maybe as seriously as it could have been.
0: Yeah. Well, it wasn't until the new detective was assigned to it that he discovered they had A DNA sample. And I never heard, maybe you've heard specifically, where did they get the DNA on the envelope? Did they open it up and it's a lick envelope and that's where they got it? Or was it on the outside of the envelope? could be anyone. It could be a mail carrier that sneezed.
2: Right. Yeah. I didn't find that, but I I think I kind of thought that through as well, that if it were, like you said, somewhere random on the envelope, they would just rule it out. Like, we can't use that because it could have been somebody at the post office. So I imagine it would be where you seal the envelope, right? Because stamps, you don't like those, right?
0: Not anymore. In 2014,
2: it would have just had an adhesive back. Okay, yeah. So it probably would have been on that seal, but then if, if the watcher was smart enough not to leave a fingerprint, how did you make that mistake? Speaking of the police not taking things seriously, at one point, it's mentioned in the cut story that some police officers started to buy into the, the next theory we're going to talk about, which is that the broadest themselves were behind these letters. Horace Corbin, the publisher of The Westfield Leader at the time, told a Gothamist reporter that the Broadduses had 12 mortgages in 10 years. He questioned how they could go from a $175,000 mortgage on their $300,000 home in Scotch Plains to a $1.1 million mortgage in that time span. But if you look at the documents, it appears that they were just refinancing their home several times, which was most likely done to secure a better interest rate each time. Next point in terms of people pointing fingers at them. No one else who lived in the house, even prior to the Woodses, had ever heard of or from the Watcher. So some people who do believe that the Broadduses created the Watcher in these letters as a form of insurance fraud or even a real estate scam, they think that the Broadduses put that first letter out to the Woodses so that they would at least have one other instance where the watcher was watching the house. right? And then there are some people who say that the broadest motive was purely to secure a movie or TV deal. I think that's absolutely insane because there's no guarantee that you could even get one. Right. Moving into the innocence column. People will also say that they wanted to knock down the house. But just as a reminder to everybody listening, there was never a plan for them to knock down the house. There was their proposal to the Westfield Planning Board to sell their lot, but it would require a subdivision. In that scenario, it would be the developer who was purchasing the lot that would have made out on the two new homes, not the Broadduses. They were only ever planning to sell that lot and hoping to get about a million for it, which would be at a loss of what they already paid. Last thing, and this I almost didn't include because it feels like another random detail that gets thrown in, but it's kind of important. During the investigation, it came out that another family on Boulevard received a note from the watcher around the same time the Broadduses received their letter. But this is just another couple who is older. They've been in their house for years and they didn't think much of the note and they also threw it away like the Woodses did. There's just not much information beyond that. So it's not like it can add a ton for us. But if the Broadduses are the watcher and the whole plot was to sort of even if it was just to devalue the property so that they could pay less in taxes, why would you send a letter to another house on the street? Because then your situation isn't as, quite as
0: special. That, that's one of the things when I looked at this, when I thought, if he did it, if he was the one writing the letters, what would be the motivation? Why would he be doing it? The financial didn't seem like a high probability idea but the idea they may have gotten in over their heads here because as you mentioned maria is from the community i think she grew up six or eight blocks away from that neighborhood so she's probably you know well familiar with that street maybe it was a really big deal for her to move there he may have stretched their budget to get them there and then realized i stretched it too far and i don't want to live here Mm -hmm. what's one way to do that well let's scare her away from wanting to be here and then maybe we can sell it and get out from under it. Um, Now that would be a real dishonest way of saying, you know, Hey, we're in over our head. We can't buy this one right now, but uh, that could be a motivation. And it it was a little interesting that one of the, it was, I don't think it was the last letter, the one where the uh, watcher mentions that they saw him out at night you know, hanging around trying to find someone and mentions binoculars are a great Mm -hmm. invention. That seemed like really interesting timing that the watcher happened to be watching while you're out. Because I believe that's the only time the watcher mentions watching the house at night. Everything else was obviously during the daytime when people are coming and going. So that's not impossible. That happened, especially if it's someone really close by. But that seemed interesting uh, timing. That he just happened to be out there and now there's a letter mentioning that he was out there. So, but in general, if the goal was money, there's better ways to do that. I mean, maybe I'm a little more dark, but if I was going to create this weird scare story that I thought was going to attract or that I wanted to attract media attention, I'd be going out digging up some roadkill. And throwing it on my porch and calling police and saying, whoever's doing this is leaving dead animals on my porch. You know, I'd, right. I'd be amping yeah. it up to really draw the attention and the fear. there, are not just a letter with no actual, you know, immediate threat to it.
1: What kind of person would Derek need to be for that to be true? Because I feel like there would be other hints of it in his personality if he were doing this, this level of deception rather than just having a conversation with his partner.
0: Well, he would be a classic traditional male stereotype role expectation where he's the provider and he needs to take care of the family Mm. and he's going to hide any financial crisis because he doesn't want them to know about it. Uh, A dark parallel there is, I mean, that's where family annihilators come from when they have Mm -hmm. uh, financial trouble that they don't tell anyone about. And the family annihilation is, in their mind, saving the family from some terrible outcome. Right. Because it's my job yeah. to take care of you and I can't and you're going to be humiliated or suffer or whatever. He would seem to be um, that kind of pattern.
1: Which culturally would be in line with I saw on that you'd posted about something similar to John List, which was just, I don't know, a five minute drive away. Yeah. So I wonder if there's something culturally in that community. Do you think, though, looking at the letters, there were any hints? I didn't get that sense from the sorts of threats like you were saying.
0: Right. It It was it was creepier uh insinuation, at least the up until the last letter, which uh definitely seemed to be more directly threatening. But it did just seem almost a passive attempt to be really creepy and imply threat without directly saying it. You know, talking about the kids, but not saying, I'm gonna, you know, do anything to your kids. And uh, what was it, the fresh blood or the new blood? Young blood. Yeah, young blood. Which is another thing that made me think old person, because they're gonna think about that. In fact, it made me think of an old person probably starting to experience <clears throat> some decline with age. So they're kind of obsessing about that.
1: Interesting.
2: Okay. Here's the last suspect grouping. We're going to go over the backyard neighbors. And their names are never shared in the cut piece, which I think is interesting. And I'd actually love to know why that choice was made. But under this guilty column, Bill Woodward, who was the Broaddus's house painter, noticed that the couple living directly behind 657 had a pair of lawn chairs oddly close to the Broaddus's backyard. And one day he saw an older man sitting in one of the chairs facing 657 rather than facing his own home. And I looked into this family and their family history. They moved into their home in 1970. One of their daughters actually married one of the Bakes's sons. So the the Bakes family was living in 657 from 1963 until 1990 when it was sold to the Woodses. If it's this family or this couple, there's a line in the letter that says, You wonder who the Watcher is, turn around, you idiots, which feels very on the nose if it is them. Right. Under their innocent column. The fourth letter arrived in February 2017, two weeks after a renter moved into 657. So the property records show that the couple living directly behind 657 sold their home in June 2017, which would mean, okay, they were there until after that last letter arrived. But a photo that was published in the Westfield Leader suggests that they may have moved out as early as January 2017. And the caption under the photo said that the family was celebrating their last Christmas at the house before the parents were moving out. And I believe that they purchased their condo in actually in 2016. It's hard to kind of confirm whether or not they were actually living in that house um, when the fourth letter arrives. But I do think the families being now connected by this one marriage is pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, and and this is one. This family, I guess I won't name them either. Uh, does date back in the community, possibly back to the 1920s or 30s mm-hmm. as well. It's an old family. It did seem to me. I mean, this is my choice of I think the most likely uh, people is either her or her husband and. I got the impression I mentioned earlier, the idea of an older person kind of experiencing a decline with age. Mm-hmm. I thought the last letter was an angry venting that I'm not getting what I want because they did move from that house to uh, a condo with greater accessibility locally. Yeah. So it was like, there's a health issue that caused them to have to leave. And why would I want to scare these neighbors away from behind me? Because I wanted my kids to move there when I heard it was for sale so they could take care of us and we wouldn't have to move. Mm. And they either didn't want to move there or they said we didn't bid on it because the price was too high. So let me scare these people away and drive the value down on it too, hoping my kids will move. Because the two that Mm -hmm. married each other, they lived just an hour and a half away in eastern Pennsylvania. And another daughter lived only a half hour away. I haven't been able to track down where all the other 10 kids were. But there was a point in the last letter that also fueled for me an older person experiencing some health problems. Because it was the last letter and the people behind were moving by that time. This is where it was, maybe you'll have an illness that never seems to go away, but makes you fell sick. That could be, I thought, feel, but maybe fell sick is Mm another term. And it says day after day after day after day. The repeat of that told me of all the things they're rambling off here, that one had emotional impact. That one reverberated with them in some way. And it was just months after that they moved to the condo. It might have been them, someone else, but there did seem to be a health issue driving this, that whoever the watcher was, they finally just gave up on trying to get this family out of the house and were succumbing to whatever it is they were trying to avoid. And again, not knowing the mental health of anyone in there. Right. The rambling could be the rambling of someone getting, a you know, starting to approach dementia and Mm -hmm. maybe speaking on behalf of one of their children, kind of re-experiencing the 60s or 70s through Mm. the head of their kids playing in there and feeling that bond.
2: Do you think there's anything to the fact that there was such a long stretch between the first three letters and that fourth letter showing up?
0: That that kind of struck me, too, that there was that gap and it seemed like it was a waiting for something to happen. And then the fourth letter was because it's not going to happen. And here's my Mm -hmm. angry venting, because that was the one that sounded most threatening and most angry uh, compared to the others. The others were trying to be creepy. This one is really trying to be more directly scary. Something's going to happen to you and you're not going to know when it's going to happen. So it did seem like the last jab taken at them.
2: There's one part in the cut piece that when I was rereading the story this year was what kind of sparked the idea in my head to reach out to you and have you come on as a guest. So I'll read it to you guys. It says, she probed the faces of shoppers at Trader Joe's to see if they looked strangely at her kids and spent hours Googling anyone who seemed suspicious. So this is a section of a story where they're explaining how paranoid the Broadduses began to feel. When I reread that, I was picturing it like it was a movie, right? But I feel like any movie that has this sort of premise. The main character typically sees the stalker at least once physically. And then I started thinking, what if it was somebody close enough to this family that they can still act normal when they're right with them? You know what I mean? Like a relative or something that just when they're around, you don't even notice that they're doing weird stuff. Yeah. But then I thought to myself... What kind of a person could do that? Be extremely close to this family, but also knowingly be doing something so cruel to them behind their back. They'd have to be a sociopath, right? Or at least some type of maybe narcissist.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, one, you have to not give away facial expression, body language. You can't emotionally react the same way. And that's going to be the realm of narcissist, you know, what we generally call psychopath or sociopath don't have the same emotional reactions i mean when they say a psychopath can fool a lie detector they can't really fool it it's that they don't give off the signals a lie detector is looking for Mm. Uh, they don't have the emotional reactions to things that other people do so they flatline on them you can spot a psychopath or sociopath with a lie detector because they don't respond to it uh, the way you expect Mm. others to But you can't tell if they're lying or not but yeah that'd be um (laughs) definitely narcissistic, controlling personality. And to be honest, I never looked that much into the Broaddus's other extended family. I mean, her parents are in town, right? Because that's where they were staying during all of this. Um, And another one I hadn't really thought about, when the letters stopped, I mean, as far as that gap goes... Is that a point where the renovations stopped? I mean, was this someone involved in the renovations that was there in the house whenever they came by? I don't know what the motivation would be for that. The
1: house painter hated the color they chose and was (laughs) holding a (laughs) grudge. Yeah. Do you think, based on everything that you've seen, that this letter writer is someone who's dangerous and could escalate in some other way in the future, or probably not?
0: Probably not. The last letter is the only one that shows someone possibly kind of escalating as far as agitation that could lead to something. But the, the earlier ones definitely were just throwing out there, trying to rattle. It didn't seem there was any intent to really do anything behind it. If it was mm-hmm. a younger person, that last letter and the more directed threat would be a sign they're progressing towards possibly something dangerous. Because in, in any murder situation, it can start as revenge fantasy that for most of us, I mean, you have something bad happen and you may have violent revenge fantasies for a while. That's considered emotionally normal and maybe even healthy. It's a way to vent, Mm. but we expect them to go away. If they don't go away, if they continue to escalate and become obsessive, they start to hit the pre-motor areas in your frontal lobe more and they Mm. start to push you towards possibly feeling a greater desire to exhibit the behavior. And if this was a younger person with that intent, I would see a trail toward that in that last letter, especially with the time frame between the Mm. two. It would say there was a progression going on in there, except that they disappeared after that and apparently didn't continue.
2: Right. Hmm. Given what we know, would you think that the motivation was about wanting the house or more about wanting to hurt the Broadduses?
0: I think it was more about wanting the house. They didn't really ever specify what the Woods letter was. They just said it was odd, something like that. It would have been nice to know the detail of that. If the watcher was frustrated they were selling or knew they were selling or whatever price was.
2: I believe it said something about thanking them for taking care of the house, but nothing specific,
0: especially because they threw it away. Yeah, I think they wanted them out of the house. Didn't want them in there. Not necessarily a vendetta against them, although it is possible because Maria was from the community. Could have been some anchor, some vendetta there. I had tried to look up old high school records to see who she may have gone to school with. That may have been a crossover with some of those other families. That's real sketchy information to try to dig.
2: I did the same thing. I don't think she crossed over with any of them.
0: It could have been the renovators coming in right away. Maybe not upset the house sold, but now they're ripping the inside of the house out. We don't know what's going on. Just anger about that, especially if you have a lot of old nostalgic memories that are important to you within that house. And now here's someone ripping that stuff out.
2: Definitely. It's such a hard case because I feel like it could go any way. I wanted to ask which of the suspects slash theories that we've discussed today do you think is the least
0: likely? Oh, the gamer. gamer. Same. (laughs) Toss him right out.
2: This started in 2014. It's now 2022. Do you think the watcher will ever be found?
0: No, no, because they flew off the radar unless, you know, if they're still around, if they decide to come forward with it and admit it, because the house has sold, right? It sold a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, finally. So the broaduses are out of there now.
1: Would there be any consequences for that legally? Or is there is it too obscure of a...
0: The Broadduses would probably sue over it. Okay. If you've looked at his, actually, he hasn't done much social media the last couple of years, but he was pretty sour about it for quite a while. Mm -hmm. He was taking jabs at people on Twitter.
2: He has a pinned tweet at the top of his Twitter directed at Horace Corbin, which I think rightfully so.
0: Interesting. If I was him and that happened to me, considering they were going after charges against the Woodses, if someone finally came out and admitted it, and I took a loss on that property. Yeah. There'd be a reason not to say anything unless it's a person who on their deathbed is going to leave a final confession. I was the Watcher. Here it is. Could be a while before we hear that. Yeah.
2: So that line in Michael Langford's obituary, which side do you lean on? Because I I completely disagree on it.
0: Uh, It is interesting. It's put in there after that line was publicized being associated with the Watcher. That does make me wonder if someone tossed that in there. And it brings me back to old families in the community, so many around there. That kind of thing can become very self-protective. The way the police kind of dropped the Langfords and the lack of attention that the family behind them got, I would have thought, there's your number one and number two suspects. Who else could it be? Why are the people behind not getting the same attention? Well, they've been in the community for decades. They've got 10 kids and you said something like 750 grandchildren running around in there. That could be a lot of community influence. So I think the yeah. police probably realized at some point, okay, we've cleared this family next door. This is just old families that are upset that these people are coming in, possibly tearing up houses or threatening the old mood of the neighborhood. They're not going to hurt anyone. So we'll just pay lip service to the broadasses and just drop it. It sounds a little small town cop, but I could definitely see that kind of thing going on. Especially Derek not having roots in the community, even though Maria does. Husband doesn't. And he's the one making a bunch of noise. He's the mm-hmm. one getting angry at police and trying to do his own investigation. Definitely an outsider stomping on your toes in there.
2: Yeah. It is super curious that they never mention either the brother's own investigation or the police investigation looking at that couple directly behind
0: and just to go back to Langford's for a moment, no one ever asked about the 93-year-old mother. I mean, is she kind of getting a little long in the tooth and maybe a little dementia? Is she writing letters, giving them to her son, and he drops them at the mailbox on Mondays on his way to the library? Right. No one ever wondered what's going on. Which bedroom is hers in that house? Did she have a view out over to that side? But for all we know, she may have been creepy Betty Davis just... Yeah. hidden off in a room, you know, and no one talks about her. She yeah. passed away just a couple months before her son did, I believe.
2: Yeah. Wow. So you made a TikTok video discussing whether or not mental illness is a requirement for somebody to commit murder. So I would love to hear more of your thoughts on that and tying back to The Watcher, whether or not you think it could be a requirement in stalking and harassing.
0: Oh, absolutely not a requirement in stalking to just foundation it with the murder thing. The majority of murders every year are not by criminals, not by people with mental illness. It's people just like you and me, usually moments of irrational rage where, you know, it may be something we never thought we could do, but we just happen to have the circumstances hit us right Mm. at the wrong time. And there it is. That's the majority. 75, 85% of murders every year are family, friend, acquaintance murders, meaning if you were killed today... It's very likely you'd know the name or at least recognize the face of the person who did it.
2: (laughs) That is terrifying.
0: And of course, if you're a woman in our culture, your single biggest threat demographic obviously is current or former intimate partners. Oh God. And the recent overturning of Roe Wade, that threat increases during pregnancy and for about nine months to a year after pregnancy.
1: Doesn't it double that for women of color who are pregnant too?
0: Yeah, that's a rough one. Now, when it comes to stalking that kind of obsessive behavior, you've got the hormone drives there, basically the reproductive drive. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's two primary drives in the body that try to take you over survival and reproduction. Right? We know the fight flight response just kicks in. What we're not really aware of so often, sexual arousal changes your cognition. It alters Mm. the way you perceive other people. It alters the way you perceive your own behavior. It wants you to engage in that act and it drives you toward it. And so you could put that on a spectrum from, you know, sexual arousal prior to sexual activity all Mm -hmm. the way to just the beginnings of attraction, finding someone attractive, that kind of thing. So there's a hormone thing when it comes to that. And like they often say, the difference between stalking in a relationship is whether both people know they're in a relationship or not. Hmm. Right. If you do, it's a relationship. If you don't, it's stalking. But no mental illness required. You just need that feeling of emotional attachment and you can develop jealousy without the other person needing to be involved. And then jealousy is more of a hormone drive, more of an obsessive drive. Anyone can experience uh, jealousy in lower levels. It is probably normal and possibly A healthy indicator of the attachment, but too often we get it up into obsessive areas that become dangerous controlling, but no mental illness is required for that at all. You just need high emotion, especially if you're more on the impulsive end of the spectrum. If you have problems with impulse control anyway, you're going to have problems with any of those other Mm -hmm. drives. So yeah, it wouldn't be necessary for that. The watcher stuff would not require any mental illness or dementia or anything like that.
2: So it sounds like they just needed an emotional attachment to the house. Then? Exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, I was going to say I didn't notice anything sexual, which obviously when there's kids involved, you're paying extra close attention to, especially if you're like on one of the parents. So the anger or emotional attachment to the actual property instead of a person. Uh, a lot of
0: yeah, family attachment, uh, nostalgia, especially. Uh, Here's my good memories of this. I uh, still feel attached to it. And here's someone possibly taking that away. And so it's almost like um, a house version of jealousy. Mm -hmm.
1: The kind of duty and obligation of an aging person who talks about the generations and kind of the fear of a lack of a legacy stands out to me.
0: Every old generation feels the ones after them are going to hell in a handbasket and Mm -hmm. they forget that when they were younger, the old people thought their generation was going to hell in a So, okay. But yeah, as people get into that 70s and 80s, you're either happy with the way things have gone or you feel like you're losing something big and losing some opportunity and chunks of your life are just going away. That's common with every generation. I mean, if there's any generation that really had a right to believe the world was going to end in their lifetime, it's the ones born in the 20s raised during the depression world war ii the red scare and then in the 60s their kids told them they were the cause of all the problems in the world so that's the generation that if they wanted to think oh my god world's horrible they're the ones as Mm -hmm. much as we hate to admit it overall the world is a safer and better place today than it's been at any point in our lifetimes as bad as You know, our country is looking right now. Overall, your streets are safer. There's less overall war going on than there has been in the past. Hmm. But we like to think things were, when I hear people nostalgic about the 70s and 80s, worst two decades you could possibly (laughs) live in. All of our crime statistics were spiking in those two decades. Didn't start to decline until um, the mid-90s. And then all those categories started coming down. And I'm going to anger my generation and a whole bunch of other people there with the decades that we've had since then. So we we could see what was with the rise and what was with the fall. It was the boomers. As the boomers entered that primary adult generation, they brought a rise in all of the categories of crime with them. It was horrible. And then as they started to age out of it, the uh, Gen X and millennials after them and Gen Z had lower rates of all of those things. So, I hate to tell my boomer and late Gen X generation this, but the younger generations are better than we ever were, um, and we just need to admit we screwed some stuff up and be happy someone coming in afterward can clean it up.
1: Wow! So I'm like, who, I need to like share that with a lot of people.
0: <laughs> well, the other one though, those generations had the most serial killers, the most prolific ones. As the murder rate dropped in the 90s, we started seeing serial killers drop off.
2: Wow. What, what was it that that generation messed up that would allow for such a rise in serial killings?
0: Total oh, entitlement. I mean, as much wow. as they like to say, we learned to work for what we have. No, you didn't. You were born <laughs> after World War II in a booming economy where everything was great. Wow. Um, there's a reason why parents in the 50s thought the kids in the 50s were the worst, most spoiled generation ever because they didn't, their idea of working hard was nothing compared to their parents who were living through the Great Depression. So you basically had everything handed, or not everything handed to you, but it was easier to access what you needed to. And I shouldn't say for that entire generation, specifically if you were a white male, you know, you're in the cash machine blowing money around at you all the time. Today, the cash machine's gone. You know, they took it with them. Yeah.
2: Do you think there were any psychological trends going on that would spark so many, let's be honest, it was mostly white men, right? Becoming serial killers. Or would you say, is it just that because crime is so under control now, you just don't see it as much?
0: Oh boy. I got to do another plug here because I actually do have a book out called Psychology of Murder or I talk about this kind of thing in it. You can see a progression that was more common in those decades around the uh, baby boomers, Mm -hmm. where parents actually weren't that involved. They weren't as involved. We like to say, oh, my parents trusted me when I was little. They didn't ask where I was going. Does that mean Mm -hmm. they're great parents and trusting parents? No, it may mean they didn't give a damn that they were not involved. Even with serial killers, you can see where they started out like any of us, and they started a gradual progression in a bad direction that was never interrupted or derailed in some way, which in normal development it would. Jeffrey Dahmer became fascinated with dead animals and bones when he was four, and he saw his dad pulling some dead carcasses from under the house. That was never directed in a positive way. He was hmm. just allowed to keep progressing and his parents were not involved. He was also, he realized he was homosexual at a time and in, in an environment where that was demonized. So he couldn't tell hmm. anyone about that. He had to hide that. Nothing stopped him, stopped that progression from going in a bad direction. And we like to think, well, the whole idea is some people are just born bad We have no evidence for that at all. Mm. If some people were just born bad, the rate of those bad people would be consistent over time and across generations and across culture, and they're not. Serial killers were primarily a product of post-World War II United States, as far as the bulk of them.
1: Specifically, United States. That's fascinating. Yeah.
2: Don't we have the highest rate of serial killings?
0: We do. And obviously, mass shooter, school shooter, Mm -hmm. yeah, family annihilators. We're number one all over the place in the murder category. We're good at hurting ourselves and each other.
1: That makes me feel a little bit more validated in terms of why I have a fascination with trying to understand it. If it's around us this much, then of course we are trying to unpack it. And I also am curious in terms of values and behaviors, I notice a threat of repression within domestic spaces. You were saying the parents weren't monitoring it and intervening, but is there also an element of just pretending everything's okay all the time?
0: The 50s was that model, right? Yeah. doesn't matter how bad things are. Keep it in your home and don't talk about it. Mm. There was the book and the movie Peyton Place that came out in the 50s. It had affairs, incest, alcoholism, and a local small town doctor performing an abortion on a girl who'd been impregnated by her dad. Scandalous stuff, right? For the 50s. Every little town in the U.S. thought that author was secretly from their town they said i can Mm -hmm. tell you who they're talking about in here oh wow and we tried to think oh that's really uncommon that's just a weird thing in my town no it was extremely common but we just Mm -hmm. didn't talk about it that's why you didn't hear about school shootings in the 50s and 60s they happened but they got very little coverage and never got national Mm -hmm. coverage uh, until columbine columbine was the first of the information age 24 7 news cycle Yeah. And that really took that off. Child abductions. You didn't hear about it. It was just what happened to Johnny at school? Oh, his parents moved. Now he got abducted and no one ever heard from him again. But we're not going to tell you that because we don't want to scare you and scare the community. So, yeah, we're going to pretend everything's okay. And when you don't talk about something and don't address it, you secretly endorse it. Kind of backdoor endorsement. Yeah. And those things just go on. It was amazing the resistance we got when we started telling parents you can't beat your kids to the point that you're putting them in the hospital, that you don't actually own your children. You're the caretakers of them. Mm Because if you screw it up, then when they turn 18, the rest of us have to deal with it. So we should have a right to say you can't beat them. Then when we studied child abuse, we started to realize, oh my God domestic abuse overall is a problem. Yeah. Guess what? You can't beat your spouse till you put them in the hospital either. And people are just screaming, oh, my rights, what happens in my home is my business. My mm-hmm. God, who, who would think that you would get such resistance to being able to hurt your own family? And that's another part of the bad generation is that domestic violence is driven by insecurity and unrealistic gender expectations that the person can't live up to when we talk about toxic masculinity we talk about mostly its effect on other people we don't talk about what the effect on the person who's doing it and why they're having that experience you Mm get these unrealistic expectations and when they say people that we have feminized boys or whatever they say it is today we actually have the opposite problem as women have demonstrated greater ability to do anything else that we used to say were male only professions Instead of men just saying, yeah, you can do that. We have escalated the masculine expectation far beyond what is normal for most people. And that's where you're starting to see the incel population increase. They're becoming more of the school shooters and the mass shooters because they now have a goal they can never reach realistically. Wow. People will show the Edward and Jacob from Twilight, the Wussified boys, this and that. Mm. But look at the men in action movies. You have to be ripped now to be masculine. You go back to the 50s and 60s, the masculine men, they had dad bods. didn't (laughs) have to be physically ripped. But today you need to be physically ripped.
1: Fascinating.
0: Yeah, I just did my rant there.
1: (laughs) No, that was very enlightening. I agree with all of it. It's helpful to hear it in this concise presentation that you just gave us. So thank you.
2: Hearing about the classes that you do teach, I want to sign up for all of them. But I wanted to ask, do you have a favorite course that you teach?
0: Two, the psychology of murder one that I mentioned because that's Mm -hmm. a fun, dark topic and I always get people really engaged in it. And the other one is human sexuality. And I love that one because it hit all the gender topics, gender and sexuality. It hit all the sensitive stuff. And the whole goal for me of that one was making people comfortable talking about something they're otherwise uncomfortable talking about. And I always loved hearing students by the end of the quarter saying, I can talk about these things now. And I didn't know you could talk about them before. They even say the weirdest thing first day is here's this old guy up here using words I would never hear a teacher. (laughs) say and he's just using them like they're okay and normal and by the end of the quarter they've habituated into that themselves i do kind of shock and awe the first day i put some Mm. images on the board that are a little more than what they're ready for i'm kind of trying to shake some people out because there's always a waiting (laughs) list for it but that was always a fun class
2: it sounds like it's really important to be normalizing a million things but definitely a more conversation around gender just given what we were just talking about
0: yeah It always gets them when I say everything in this class, we're going to put on a spectrum, even biological sex itself. Mm -hmm. We can put on a spectrum from fully formed male to fully formed female. And what about that middle? You can have a dead center on that scale that cannot be identified by gender, by chromosomes, by physical reproductive system, because there isn't any. Mm -hmm. You can have the mosaic pattern of chromosomes. When people say it has to be one or two, where do you put the middle? I mean, you've got a big ground in there.
1: My guess would be that most people have some hesitation around that because their need to categorize things just helps the world feel like a cleaner place or an easier place to understand.
0: Good, bad, right, wrong, boy, girl, whatever it is, we hate gray areas.
1: My therapist
2: told me once she was like, there are no good or bad people, just people who do good and bad things. And she also was telling me the world is not black and white. So you're going to have to like learn to see the gray.
0: I love to spray gray around a classroom throughout (laughs) the quarter and just see the confusion.
2: Totally. Hashtag spray gray. (laughs) Um, Do you have a favorite true crime case that you teach or just one that you've looked into yourself?
0: I don't have a favorite the one that I get asked about a lot, I mentioned this right at the beginning, was the Jean-Benet Ramsey one, mostly lately because people want to know if I think the brother, there's been an entire documentary pointing at the brother because of the grand jury suggested charges against the parents. I actually don't really think that points at the brother because one of the things it talks about, I believe, is unlawfully putting her into a risk environment. How would having your brother around be an unlawful risk in the environment? I'm not saying this is what happened, but this is one of the other things that I suggest as possibilities of what happened that would fit the grand jury things is that the parents were somehow involved in kind of a sexual molestation network involving their daughter and Mm -hmm. other kids in these pageants. And so they know who likely killed her, but they didn't want to reveal it because that would also reveal what they were involved in and what they had been doing. So they kept quiet, and it was probably someone in the community that probably had some connections that was the one. That's one of the ones, like all of these, that get true crime attention. There are things that don't make sense. There's puzzle pieces that don't seem to fit. And you get some people that seem to be the obvious culprits, but they don't get charged. And mm-hmm. that's what draws people, wanting to bring the theories in here. The Gabby Petito, Brian Laundry case, While He Was Missing, mm-hmm. Is he in Mexico? Is he in the Appalachian Trail? Is he a serial killer? Did he kill these mm-hmm. other people? Some people are actually angry when his body was found and they confirmed it was his. They didn't want it to be a simple end like that. Some people wanted yeah. to see him as a villain, the type of villain that would escape and want to you know, still be a threat out there, not potentially the kind of guy who really fit the profile of probably death in a rage, in an irrational state, because everything fits that, that he just took off and left the body and just went home. And then just weeks later, ended his life. Although if you've read his letter.
1: I was just going to say, speaking of letters, his enraged me personally, because it was such a still trying to absolve himself.
0: Yeah. Oh, what was me? I did what was best. I was doing what was best for her. And he throws a little jab at her parents in there. I hope the animals eat me or whatever. At least it'll make her Mm -hmm. parents happy. He couldn't really admit guilt without trying to absolve himself in some way. Yeah. So there's definitely the narcissist in there. But I never thought it was intentional because it would have been so easy to build a cover story that she had taken off on him or something because of an argument they had. And so he came home to wait for, you know, he had her phone. He could have faked some texts back and forth and no one would have thought to look for a body. They would have thought, well, where did she go?
1: I have a question, actually, a really quick one about that. If it were just a quick accident, how was he able to function normally day to day for several weeks instead of just dying by suicide right after the
0: fact? He probably didn't. And I'm kind of wondering the time frame because there was a couple who found him hitchhiking Mm -hmm. and started to give him a ride and then he freaked out and needed to get out. I'm wondering if that was after she had died because they were trying to find their way back to their van. Mm -hmm. I wonder if he kind of in a haze went out and got that ride and then realized he was going the wrong way. And then just kind of autopilot drove away and where did he go? To his parents, his safe space. We actually don't know because the parents didn't talk about it, what kind of mental state he was in when he came back. He could have been just completely out of it.
1: I googled his sister because I was like, has she given any more interviews since that one? But she's been totally shushed. So yeah, I couldn't find anything.
0: I can see Petito's parents bringing charges, though, because I Mm -hmm. believe Laundrie's parents even spoke out about searching for her when they knew she was deceased and that their son had done it.
1: And this could have been a coincidence, but the fact that they were right there when they found the bag is strange to me.
0: Yeah, they seemed to know right where they were going.
1: Yeah, I know you are good at reading body language, obviously. So even just looking at the photos, like something's weird about them walking together in those paparazzi photos. I wouldn't know if it's paparazzi.
0: There were some alternatives on there that dad shot him, and that's why they knew where to go. Oh, you know, you're going to confess and you've embarrassed the family. I really don't see that happening yeah. considering what they did to protect him
2: i think it was an interesting case in point too of the first cases to become viral on tiktok as that platform continues to grow looking back imagine if the jominay Ramsey case had been around when tiktok was
0: well it was a viral video that found the van that helped right. find gabby's body someone who was driving through and is this their van and it was and that told them where to go look
2: It's interesting that platform in terms of discoverability, whereas places like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, you're really only following either people, you know, in real life or celebrities you're fans of. But TikTok allows you to discover almost anybody and the algorithm will point you to things that you've engaged with in the past in terms of the subject of the video. So I do think that almost like a secret weapon in these types of cases and being able to connect. Does anybody know this person or has anybody seen this
1: man? It's going to travel a lot further. Yeah, it's a different type of echo chamber that you're getting served or funneled into. Right.
0: Facebook, you follow people. Mm-hmm. TikTok, you're following interests. That's what it's mm-hmm. going to throw at you, not necessarily people. Which can be a problem if you <laughs> fall down into a TikTok hole in the algorithm you don't want to be in.
2: Right. You yeah. got to
0: make an effort to search stuff and like things so the algorithm will shift you over.
2: Yeah, totally. Speaking of TikTok... Do you want to tell our listeners where they can watch more of your videos?
0: I don't hide my name. So it's just at Casey Lytle (laughs) on TikTok. I'm the easiest person to dox ever because I use my real name (laughs) everywhere. I mean, the cover of my book might as well be a Google map that shows the dot of where my house is.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yeah. Is it me or did we just
2: cram an entire college course into an hour-long call? I feel like I just learned so much. I know. I'm so glad that we had a chance to get Casey's perspective on the watcher letters and possible suspects and all the theories. Mm -hmm. I really don't think that I would have made that connection to an older person declining in age and potentially experiencing early stages of dementia. As sort of the center point of like Venn diagram between someone with a strong desire for the house and someone struggling with mental illness or the effects of aging. Mm hmm. And especially when he pointed out that line about feeling sick day after day after day and how that repetition, it could be a reflection of what an older person might be feeling physically themselves. That blew my mind because it never it didn't stand out to me. I never made that connection.
1: Yeah. Frankly, even if we did make that connection, who are we to actually be giving the diagnosis? So it's validating when someone who does have the credentials is like that could definitely be a sign pointing to either dementia or I feel like another thing he kept saying about that line was. That tendency to fixate on an issue and be a little bit resentful. And then he was talking about when people reach a point in their lives, usually he was saying it tends to be in your 70s or 80s. You either feel reflective and satisfied or starting to hold on to these grudges or things that you felt were unresolved issues even more. That to me was very fascinating. Yeah. Of course, even hearing his explanation of why mental illness doesn't even need to be a factor or requirement for stalking and murder, just the connection of sexual arousal and relationships and how the difference between like stalking and a relationship, it's just whether or not both people know that really scared me.
2: Yeah, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry about that because I just kept thinking, what does this say about my decades long obsession with Nick Jonas? You know, it did come into my mind too. (laughs) Anyways, I also thought the idea that he pointed out in the JonBenet case of the ring. Oh, the parents being maybe involved
1: in a Yeah. I mean, that's such a dark thought. Obviously, we don't know enough about that specific case to say what we really think. But I'm sure there's a million threads on Reddit that make that claim, too. Yeah,
2: I had not heard it anywhere else. Mm. So that was interesting. And it does sort of add up if you're thinking critically on all of the information that's out there. But I just really appreciated his perspective
1: conspiracy theories in general are always wild and his book about them just came out so we should check that out
2: definitely well even though we're probably never going to find out who the watcher is hopefully they are really done And everyone affected by the letters can move forward even without that closure. Yeah. Hopefully the house can have a fresh start and shake the reputation of being the Watcher house. But I actually don't think it will. Not anytime soon, at least, especially with a Netflix series coming out. Mm. And admittedly, I'm really excited to see it. I'm curious how close to the true story they're going to stay or if they'll take more creative liberties. Like, will they reveal the Watcher in the end? Oh, yeah.
1: That's a good question. Obviously, as a viewer, you'd want to know who it is at the end of the show. That would be more satisfying. But then when you Google it, you're like, oh, wait, they never really found out. Although maybe whoever produced the show found some new information that will make it easier to make a claim. We'll find out, I guess. Well, thank you for doing this deep dive because I have been curious about it. And I'm glad, though, that you were the one to take the plunge into it.
2: Listen, it was my pleasure. It was a deep, deep dive, but I would say it was worth it. And hopefully everybody listening agrees If you enjoyed today's episode, please let us know in an Apple podcast review or a
1: DM. Our Instagram handles are our full names, or you can message us on the Dark House account, which is at Dark House Podcast, Make sure you're following it so you can keep up with updates about new episodes and see some visuals. And of course, if you have any
2: of your own theories about The Watcher that we didn't discuss in this episode, we definitely want to hear about them. I'm done with this episode, but I'm not done with this story. <laughs> so please share your theories.
1: For next week, we'll be back with another new house, this time an apartment on San Francisco's iconic Lombard Street. And I promise you, you won't want to miss it.